Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, welcome to Cleaning Up the Mental Mess, my podcast dedicated to giving you the latest scientific strategies to helping you improve your mood, mind, and mental health. I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf, a neuroscientist and mental health researcher, and my goal is to help you help yourself and others. In this episode, I interview best-selling author, marketing guru, and world-renowned thought leader, Seth Godin, on how we have been misunderstanding and missing creativity, perfectionism, and passion, why we should avoid reassurance, how to deal with the painfulness of criticism, how to increase creativity and harness it as a useful tool to improve our mental health, and so much more. If you enjoy listening to my podcast, I would love it if you could leave a five-star review and subscribe wherever you listen. And keep sharing episodes with friends and family and on social media. And now, on to today's episode. Seth, I'm really, really excited to welcome you into the studio today and to talk to you about your amazing approach to life and the work that you do. It's incredible. So thank you. Well, thank you for having me. And hopefully we'll say something interesting. We'll do our best. I think that we're going to achieve that. No problem. Well, before we start, do you mind just telling my listeners a little bit about yourself and your bio? Tell us what's also what's not in your bio. You know, give us some little nice inside story then. Why do you do what you do? What keeps you motivated? You know, all that good stuff. Well, I've been a teacher for 40 years. I'm an entrepreneur and a blogger. I write one of the most popular <laughs> blogs in the world and I've written 20 best-selling books. Mostly what I try to do. You say that so casually. Sorry, I have to interrupt. You say that so casually. That is such an achievement in itself. Well done. (laughs) The first eight are hard. After that, you get momentum. I've written books about change, about marketing, about leadership, and about getting out of our own way. Because each of us knows the change we want to make in the world, but then we talk ourselves out of it. Mm. And so the workshops that I run, the teaching I do, it's not about hype or hustle or tips or tricks. It's about coming to grips with the only place to start is where we are. And what we have is the opportunity and thus the obligation to make things better. And that's my life's work. And that's what I try to do. What's not in my bio? Well, most of me is not in my bio. I try to separate the voice of Seth Godin with a capital S from the person who's not on screen when I'm not on screen. But I am an avid style canoeist and I love to spend time in Canada. I spend a lot of time listening to jazz and I have the world's greatest shelter dog. So those are cute. That's wonderful. Well, you said a lot of things there that are interesting, but you did tell me a little behind the scenes story about the forward that you got written for your book 20 years ago. You got to share that story. It's fun. (laughs) So authors tend to remember the books they did that sold the worst because they're like their favorite child. (laughs) And the book I did that took the most time to write a year, eight hours a day is called Survival is Not Enough. And it applied the thinking of evolutionary development to leadership and business. And who better to write the foreword than Charles Darwin? The problem is that Charles Darwin is dead. And (laughs) so what I did was I got a copy of The Origin of Species and edited a 700-page document into three pages. I didn't add one word. I just took out words. And those three pages became the foreword for my book. I just love that. So creative. And you are creative. You do creative differently. And you made a comment in your introduction that I'd love to just jump onto. You help people get out of their own way. That's quite a statement and quite a provocative one. Can you talk a little bit about that? Well, so the words matter here a lot. And my new book, which is called The Practice, Practice. was going to be called trust yourself. 
And my editor talked me out of that title. But if we're going to trust ourselves, who is doing the trusting and who is the self? It turns out almost all of us are used to having two voices in our head. Mm-hmm. We have the voice in our head that's articulate, that's afraid, that talks us out of things, that conforms and complies. And then we have the other voice in our head that we call maybe artistic, that dreams, that wants us to go forward. And it's super easy to get in a debate with ourselves. And usually the fearful voice wins, the resistance, the one that says you need to fix your hair before you go on a blind date, right? The one that is constantly criticizing us. And what I'm trying to help people see is there's no external force. There is no muse. There is no magic. There's no talent. None of those things actually are factors. All that's a factor is that you care enough to trust yourself to get out of your way so that you can show up even if it's not going to work. Because we live in a culture where people want to guarantee mm. before they show up. Yeah. And there are no guarantees. And so we don't show up. So good. So to have that courage to challenge that resistance voice and to really run with that voice that actually is driving you to experiment and, and explore and be, be prepared to make the mistakes and fail. And you know, we all know this, don't we? We know this, but it's, it, it's to get that balance, to get the resistance voice down and to get the, the creative or experimental voice, I don't know what you call it, moving forward. Right. And there are some barriers. The first one, one of the largest sources of clutter is imposter syndrome. That voice that says you're a fraud, that you're fake, that people are going to discover that you don't belong, mm-hmm. et cetera. And it's been amplified in the last 50 years dramatically. Mm-hmm. And people say, well, how do I get rid of imposter syndrome? And they're surprised at my answer because you are an imposter. And so am I. And anytime we are leading, anytime we are doing art, anytime we are doing something that might not work, well, we've never done it before. So how can we be sure? Mm -hmm. I've never been on your podcast before. How can I be sure I'm going to do a good job? I shouldn't do it if I can't be sure. And so I feel like an imposter. However, fighting it just makes it worse. The answer is, oh, good. That's a symptom that I'm doing the work. The symptom is you feel like an imposter. Stop seeking reassurance and instead embrace the fact that the reason this work is hard and scarce is we can't outsource it. We can't find a computer to do it. We can't get someone cheaper than you to do it. Only you can do that. And if you need a guarantee, you're going to be waiting a very long time. You know, I love what you've just said. I do clinical trials. And one of the things that I just, in the mind-brain research I've been doing for 38 years, is this concept of embracing, not being, like you talked about the imposter syndrome, actually sort of embrace that. And you see that as a symptom and that you're doing the work, that it's hard, but you're doing the work. And that's just, that's a shift of perspective. And that's what I showed as well in my research, that when you actually embrace any kind of so-called negative emotion or negative feeling, like, for example, imposter syndrome, your brain shifts into the highest mode of function and you actually weaken the top. The, 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 you could call it that resistance voice or you weaken those toxic things and you actually, it's hard, but if you face that and push through, that's when you will see the change around and we see, and you see the changes in the brain and the body and the whole mind-brain connection. So it's a slightly different angle, but there's scientific evidence there that we need to embrace those things like imposter syndrome and so on, not sort of shove them down or let them keep us stuck and not move forward. So I'm really glad you said that. I, I love how you explained that. Thank you. And so let me try to run another definition by you because you're way more expert than me. So the definition of stress that I've been using is stress is when we want to do two things that are incompatible at the same time. We want to stay and we want to run. We want to be quiet. We want to speak up. When we want to be furious, but we know we need to be calm. Those are the moments when we feel stressed. If you get to do what you want to do, the stress goes away. And if that's true, then my contention is a huge form of stress is wanting to express ourselves, wanting to let that part of us be trusted, but also wanting to be universally liked, applauded, and successful. If you Mm. want both of those at the same time, it's super easy to be bitter. That's brilliant. You've got to actually decide which one you're going to go for. And I agree with your your definition of stress because stress actually is something that's good for you because it makes you sharp and alert and focus. But when you start doing the, I want both, you're going to be frustrated. You've actually made stress work against you. So literally when you follow your 
gut instinct, which is to actually go with what you who you are, then you have 1400 neurophysiological responses that work for you, increasing your resistance, increasing your blood flow and oxygen to your brain. So you've got clarity of thinking and you've, you've got courage and it doesn't matter what everyone else is saying. But if you hover and kind of shift to the other side and you get bitter, then the stress works against you. So it now shifts physiologically and 1400 physiological responses work against you instead of for you. Now you drop blood flow and oxygen in your brain. So I mean, there's such real and then that makes you feel super lousy when you don't have enough blood flow and oxygen in your brain and your body's going crazy. So then there's all that mind bitter plus body and brain angst combined together. That's right. And yet the biggest pushback I get when I talk about the practice, when I talk about creativity, when I talk about leadership over and over again from some of the most creative people I know is, but what if they don't like it? What do I do about this one-star review? How do I respond to this rejection? And social media has made it so much worse because they Mm. call things that aren't likes, likes. They call people who aren't friends, friends. And Mm. they are constantly updating us about how people are talking about us behind our back. Mm. And so we get trapped. And my solution is, what if the work you're doing is generous? What if you are a lifeguard? If you're a lifeguard and you know you're not the best lifeguard in the world. You have proof that other people are better at being a lifeguard than you. And there's someone drowning three feet in front of you. Should you rescue them or should you run away and hope a better qualified lifeguard will do it? Well, the answer is pretty obvious. You Mm -hmm. rescue them. Because the drowning person doesn't care that you're the best lifeguard. They simply care that you showed up for them. And if we can view our work as generous... Then we're not taking anything. We're giving something. That is so good. Someone doesn't get the joke. All right. Sorry. I love that. You know, there's research that shows that when you do that, when you when you help others, when you have that generous attitude, and even if you feel like you're in a place where you feel like you need the help or you're battling, it increases your own ability to heal or function at a higher level, be more creative by about a factor of 68%. So, you know, we designed for that. We actually are wired to move in that generous direction. I love that. So it's not that you always need, there's always going to be someone perhaps better than you, but still you show up. So it's the showing up that you're saying is the, is the critical factor here, is show up with what you've got and do it. Right. And it, it's showing up because, well, so I have a blog. I've written 7,500 blog posts in a row. Incredible. And thank you. There aren't very many people who have a streak like that, but here's no. the deal. I don't blog every day because I have a perfect blog post. I will blog tomorrow because it's Thursday. That's the only reason. And then I'll blog the day after that because it's Friday. Once you know you're going to show up, I made that decision once. I don't make it every day. Once you make that decision once, then your subconscious goes to work to say, well, if I'm going to show up, I might as well bring my best. And Mm. that decision-making tree is critically important because we want to make the decision that we're going to do this generous act for the people we choose, the smallest viable audience. We don't want to make the decision again. And now once we know we're jumping in the pool to save the person, of course we're going to do the best we can because we already committed. I love that. You've committed and you show up and then you do your best. And it's that that people maybe in this day and age are not committing. So your book, The Practice, give us an overview of the book. So it's, it's teaching these principles, obviously. Talk, talk a little bit more about the book. I wrote it sort of for me to read it, but I also wrote it because it's the thing that comes up the most as I'm trying to help people go forward, which is they can understand the technology, the tactics, the way forward, the strategy, but then they get stuck and Mm. they get stuck because they have a sloppy creative practice. They're waiting for perfect. They're waiting for a crisis when the alternative is to say, this is the way I do it. I always do it. I do it again and again. I ship creative work. If it doesn't ship, it doesn't count. If I need more skill, I'll go get more skill. But I will not whine about a lack of talent because there's no such thing. All that matters is that I have a craft that I am developing and my practice protects me, as the great Elizabeth King said, protects me from the weakness of my daily intent. Because in any given Mm -hmm. moment, we have reasons to back off this work, this generous work. But if you have a practice, you've already decided. 
that's brilliant. And this book teaches you how to, I've heard you say that, that statement a few times, get it shipped out. So that's, in other words, make it happen. Well, make it happen means, so there was a very important artist named Hilma Afklimt. And she's from Sweden. And from, I say important, but I shouldn't say important. She was, she could have been important. She painted 10,000 paintings in her lifetime from 1910 to 1940 or so. And no one ever saw them. If they had been displayed when she was painting them, they would have changed the arc of modern and contemporary art forever. When you look at them, and I saw her exhibition at the Guggenheim, when you look at them, they look like they're sort of from another planet because they rhyme with the art we have, but they're not the art we have. She had a very distinctive point of view. And her work was in and of itself. It was very real and it was professional, but she never showed it to anyone, just four people. Mm. And when she died, she put in her will that her nephew, her only heir, had to store the paintings for 20 more years before he showed them to anybody else. Goodness. And I make the controversial point that Hilma was a painter, not an artist, because to be an artist, people have to see your work. When they see your work, when they interact with your work, they are changed and so are you. You. Mm. Because this act of showing people the work is where the generosity comes in. If oh, you're not going to show that. the work, it's a hobby. I love hobbies. Hobbies are great. But if you want to be making art in any form, you have to ship the work. No guarantees that it's going to work. No excuse for being sloppy. Ship the work and then do more work because that's how we make things better. Oh, I love that. Lately, I have been finding it hard to motivate myself to work out and be more active, especially as I work on finishing my new book on a tight deadline. But I recently discovered a hack that actually makes me excited to work out and go for long walks. So, what is it? Well, I love listening to audiobooks on Blinkist. Blinkist is an app that takes the best key takeaways, the need to know information, from thousands of non-fiction books and condenses them down into just 15 minutes that you can read or listen to. With Blinkist, you get unlimited access to read or listen to a massive library of condensed non-fiction books. All the books you want and all for one low price. Right now, for a limited time, Blinkist has a special offer just for our audience. Go to Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. Try it free for seven days. And save 25% of your new subscription. That's Blinkist, spelled B-L-I-N-K-I-S-T. Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf to start your free seven-day trial. And you'll also save 25% off, but only when you sign up at Blinkist.com slash Dr. Leaf. The link and offer details will also be in the show notes. It's just the courage to get out there. You know, a lot of the work I do revolves around theoretical quantum physics. And there's a a statement that's made that quantum physics is the science of thought. And the primary kind of focus of quantum physics is about, not about you, but about you in the world and your impact on others and how your own quantum waves literally are enhanced by other waves. And that's just kind of the science behind what you're saying, because it is, it's true. It's not, if it's just here, you, you can't just be here you've got to actually interact and share it with the world and that's when you the feedback grows you and and but people as you say in this day and age are scared of feedback i think they've always been but i think it's even worse now because it's so quick and obvious and big and loud and and so many people can see so much so quickly and there's so much a different level of competition where people are more threatened and that's what's holding people back so we have to kind of break that barrier don't we to be able to really ship things out we do and i think it's important to state that Quantum physics is a metaphor for a lot of what we're talking about, but we are not actually talking about colors and charms and quarks and bosons and the rest of it. We talk about them in foundation. Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. And that, you know, Heisenberg and Copenhagen and all those things have really rich metaphors for us when we think about what is it to be examined? Exactly. What is it to be seen? And Mm. the irony of social media is while it is apparently about being seen, it is mostly about hiding. It is about Mm. hiding behind the tropes of the moment and fake masks. Even authenticity, which I am not a fan of, is a form of hiding. Because if you act like a jerk and someone calls you out on it, you can just say, well, I was being authentic. 
Mm, well, it's an excuse. No. Ah. You're just annoyed with me for calling you out. You wish you could have gotten away with what you said. That's not authentic. What we need you to be is a professional. And a professional is different than authentic. If you go to a veterinarian with your puppy or your kitten, and they say, oh, I don't really feel like saving your dog's life. You're not happy with that. Mm-mm. They're being authentic, Mm-mm. but you wanted them to be professional. professional. Make a promise and keep it. So I define art not as painting. Art is the work we do when we do something that might not work, but might make something better. And if we're going to make art, if we're going to be leaders, the only way to do that is to make a promise and then try to keep it. So if you go to see a Richard Serra sculpture, he doesn't have a brochure, but the promise is something transcendent might happen when you see negative and positive space at this scale. That's why you went to see it. It's not supposed to smell like chocolate chip cookies. He might like the smell of chocolate chip cookies, but that's not what the sculpture is for. Yeah. So we got to be really clear. Who's it for? What's it for? What change do I seek to make? And then we ship the work. And if it doesn't cause the change we sought, don't blame the audience. Make something better and then Mm. do it again and do it again. Because we're not hacks. We're not here to ask the audience what they want. But we are artists. We're here to change them. And the only way you can do that is by shipping the work and seeing if it works and then doing it again. That's absolutely outstanding. So if someone, if you get negative feedback, that's still feedback. And we shouldn't be thrown by that. We should use that to, what is that negative feedback to change the practice, to enhance the skill, to change the sculpture, to do something different. But at the same time, if I hear what you said earlier, we're also not going to live on people's approval. So it shouldn't throw you back that you just give up. It should spur you on to dive deeper and see, okay, well, it had that kind of impact. And maybe that's what you were looking for. Maybe that negative feedback is 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 the impact you were looking for. So we have to be authentic with ourselves in what we deliver. And that's where the professionalism comes in. So we're not authentic in terms of trying to please people. We're authentic in terms of what we can offer the world. Let's talk about feedback and criticism. Okay, good. Three Three important topics. One, all criticism is not the same. This is really Would you say this? Yeah, okay. So I stopped reading my Amazon reviews eight years ago. I haven't read one of them. I have never met an author who read all their one-star reviews and is now a better writer. Exactly. There's no purpose in it. Why? Because a one-star review does not tell you anything about you. It tells you something about the reviewer. And what it says is, I don't like stuff like this. Oh, okay. We learned something about you. But that's not the same as the helpful feedback of someone who gets the joke, is on the journey, Mm. knows what we're capable of. And is capable of giving us something that we might be better called advice, Mm. not feedback or criticism, but advice. And that is priceless. And it gets even more priceless if the person who's giving it to us is good at it. Mm. And so when my editor, Nikki Papadopoulos, said, you know, I know we're mostly on audio, but I'll show you what my hat looks like. No, we all do. You're going to have to get a new set of hats. (laughs) I love it. I don't think that's a good title for your book. I was bummed out because I had hats and everything. Yeah, you had all made. Nikki, Nikki is really good at understanding how to be in between the reader and the writer. And if I'm not going to listen to her on something like this, then I shouldn't work with her, right? So in that case, I said to myself, this is priceless advice. This is mm. advice that someone mm. would pay hundreds of thousands of dollars for. Of course, I'm going to listen to her. That's why I'm in this room. And so we've got to figure out who's it for, because all criticism is not the same. And if it's for, if someone who's good at it is giving us advice, well, then that might be worth listening to. I love that. So there's feedback, which could be something you may want to not worry about, because it's telling you about the person, then there's advice, and then there's real counsel. There's that real professional that you're really going to learn something from. I just finished my 18th book, and my editor's the same. He'll, he made the suggestion to move. I just thought the chapters were in the right order. You know, that just made logical sense. He said, no, hang on, let's flip this here and that there and that there and that there. And let's change this and that. And let's just restart. And at first I thought, hey, you don't know my stuff. This is science, you know. And my reaction, then I thought, no, that he is giving me good counsel. And when I read what he said, he's 
did it all. He flipped everything. It made so much more sense. The flow was there. So yeah, I know what you're saying. And as you say, those one star reviews on Amazon, I don't know when I last looked either. And that goes for people that are sitting there reading every comment on Instagram and they might get 20 great ones and two negative ones and they spend all day worrying about the negative ones. We've got to watch where that's coming from. So that negative criticism or the feedback, the three levels, the one that we shouldn't pay attention to is the one that's more the person's frustration coming out on you kind of thing because they didn't get it. Or it could very well, you know, in, in my book, This Is Marketing, I tell the story of a stand-up comic. He's worked very hard to get to his level. His agent calls him up and says, I got a breakthrough for you. 500 people in a theater, bring your best day, right? So the comic shows up and he's really polished. And an hour later, not one person has laughed the whole Oof, time. Ouch. Not one. <laughs> he bombs. And he's leaving the theater and the phone rings and it's his agent. The agent's sort of sheepish. He says, oh, I made a mistake. It was a tour group from Italy and no one spoke English. Uh. <laughs> so the question is, who screwed up? The comic or the audience or the agent? Well, obviously the agent. agent it wasn't the yeah. audience's fault and it wasn't the comic's fault. So a lot of the time you are getting criticism. What people are actually saying quite simply is, this wasn't for me. And it's the answer so to good. that is, thank you. Thanks for letting me know. The answer is not to change what you make. The answer is to realize you didn't make it for anyone like that. Amazing. And you should be clear up front. It's not for you. So I'll tell you an interesting marketing insight. It's very, very so, good advice. You know that spam you get where mm -hmm. they say, some king has died. And if you give us this money, we'll get the briefcase yeah. full. Right, right. Yeah, got it. It's filled with typos and stuff, right? Yes. It's always, well, why is that? After all these years, clearly they have made enough money to afford an editor. Exactly. Why is it so bad? Well, they do it on purpose. They do it on purpose because they don't want smart people to write back. They want stupid people to write back because <laughs> smart people waste their time. Smart people start going back and forth and then sooner or later don't send the money. But yeah. stupid people, stupid Full people they can steal from. So they leave the typos in on purpose as My a way goodness. of finding their audience. And that's why romance novels don't look like business books, because they don't want someone who's looking for a business book to accidentally buy a romance novel, even though in the short run, they'd sell a couple more books, because in the long run, they'd be annoying people. Make it look like it's supposed to look. Make it look like it's supposed to look. That's profound. So you need to know your audience. You need to have that practice mentality where you can actually know your, what you're looking for, know your audience, what you, what you can bring to the table. You need to know what you can bring to the table. And then that's going to be specific for an audience. So you also, if I'm hearing you correctly, you're saying don't try and please everyone because you, you just cannot. But we're in a world that says you must please everyone and everyone must like you. And you know, it's false sort of toxic positivity, whatever you want to call it. That's right. So, you know, there are scientists who are on track to win a Nobel Prize. And there are scientists who do important work who will never win a Nobel exactly. Prize. The people in the second group should not be cursing out the people in Sweden. They should just say, I'm not making this for the judges in Sweden. That's not my work. Don't wait for the phone to ring because they're not going to call you. And as soon as you give up on that, you can go back to focusing on who you're actually here for and just mm -hmm. do that work. Otherwise, you're going you're gonna to water down the quality of what you can offer because you're so busy being distracted or waiting for what you think is the approval that you need to be able to move forward. And that's just so unhealthy. Gosh, so, well, this is amazing. You say creative, I, I want to ask you this question. You, you also say create, creativity is an act of leadership. How so? And how can we be more creative in our everyday lives? And creativity is one of those things that you know, as, a, as a scientist, it always kind of, I always have to correct people because, and I'm not correcting you, I'm just saying from a scientific perspective, you hear people saying that's a right brain activity. Well, it's impossible for anything to be a right brain activity because your whole brain's always working all the time. So you've got constant function. Obviously, it's, it's basically using your mind properly so that your brain works properly. But that's just from that side. Can you speak about it in terms of what it is in leadership? Let's start with this. Leadership and management are not the same thing. They are often used the same way, but they're not. Okay. Management is the cornerstone of industrialism. Management is getting people to do what they did yesterday, but faster and cheaper. Mm. Management is about compliance and coercion. You have power and you use it to get people to do what you want. Mm -hmm. It's not something to be shunned. We need management in our world or it all falls apart. 
leadership is voluntary. You voluntarily lead and you voluntarily follow because it has no coercion power. Leadership is I'm going over there who wants to come. And what it means to go over there is I'm not sure how to get there, but we're going to go explore that. Well, that is an act of creativity. Mm. And creativity, by definition, is something that hasn't been done before. So it is also an act of leadership. So when I think about science, the vast majority of people in science do management. They say there's 400 drugs to be tested against this clinical group. Let's turn the, the wheel. Let's turn the wheel and turn the wheel. That's not creative. That's important, really mm -hmm, important. Mm -hmm. What's creative is saying no one's ever taken this generally recognized as safe substance, applied it against this modality, and done this. And that might not work. And it's going to exactly. cost us a lot of time and energy to find out. And I'm going to go lead that. That is a creative act. Yeah. I, I love that definition. I totally get that. So it's something that's totally new. You're not just, it's something that you're exploring and it's something that hasn't been done before. And you have a lot, have, have to have a lot of courage and believe in yourself and be prepared to fail because the failure is linked to the success. Love that. That's fantastic. If you're waiting for a guarantee, you're going to be waiting a very long time. Yeah, you said that earlier on. That's so But If you're waiting for a guarantee, you're going to be waiting forever, literally, because you're not going to get that. So you also say this book is a capstone of decades of helping people discover that they're able to find their voice and share it. And that we shouldn't wait for permission, but we should figure out the change we seek to make and find a way to show up with our best work. So you've been saying that, but I just love that phrase. So how does one begin to figure out and change, figure out the change and seek to make and find the way to show up with their best work? Because you've, you've hinted at the, the philosophy of that, but how do they do it? So let, let's talk for a minute about finding your voice, because what an odd expression. I was recording an audio book two years ago. And because as I've gotten older, my previous way of speaking was wearing me out. I actually was unable to speak for two weeks. Wow. I had to go see a voice coach on an emergency basis. There was some doubt if my voice was ever going to come back. I wow. had screamed it so badly. Mm -hmm. That's not the kind of voice I'm talking about finding. Finding your voice for me is not about authenticity, because I think that's something we reverse engineer after we're happy. It's about willingly being peculiar or idiosyncratic. Mm. The word peculiar comes from the Latin of owning a cow. It comes <laughs> from private property. Peculiar means it's yours. And idiosyncratic means it's unique. Mm. And we have been pushed since we were in first grade to not have a voice, to just answer the test questions the way they're supposed to be answered, to say back what the teacher said, to say back what the boss said. So most people aren't willing to be peculiar or idiosyncratic. Mm. And so they feel stifled because they've been managed into nothing. Mm. And so a key part of being creative is when you look at my work, can you tell I made it? Because if you can't tell I made it, then it's probably not worth me making. Because if someone else could have made it, they could have done it cheaper than me. And that idea of being idiosyncratic and peculiar is very scary and urgent. This podcast was made possible by Thrive Market, my go-to online store for all healthy food, snacks, and clean body care products. Thrive Market makes shopping for the best products for body, brain, and mental health super easy and affordable. I love their extensive range of clean and non-toxic beauty care products. It's where I buy all my safe makeup, toners, cleansers, you name it. Shopping with Thrive Market is healthy without the hassle. You can easily shop 70 plus diets and values like keto, paleo, gluten-free, vegan, non-GMO, fair trade certified, BPA free and more. Skip the store and the lines. And when you join, you give back. Through Thrive Gives, their one-for-one -one membership matching program, every paid membership sponsors a free one for a low-income family. Go to thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. Join today and you'll get a free gift of your choosing, up to $24 in value. That's thrivemarket.com slash drleaf to start your risk-free membership and get a free gift today. thrivemarket.com slash drleaf. The link will be in the show notes. Elaborate a little bit. See. I love that. I love that. Urgent because the world is a mess. Yeah. And we need industrializing our way into more of a mess faster and louder isn't going to solve the problem. We need people to stand up for racial justice. We need people to stand up 
to fight the prevailing model of carbon. We need people to stand up and figure out how to give a voice to people who don't have a voice. Go down the list of all the things exactly. we need. Who's, who's doing those things? Well, you could, if you're willing to be peculiar and idiosyncratic in how you approach it. We don't need more soldiers. We need more people who are willing to say, follow me. That's brilliant. We don't need more soldiers. We need more people who are willing to, are willing to say, follow me. Because there's something, I always used to say this to people when I was training, a lot of training in my life with all different corporate schools, etc. But one of the things that I'd always say is that there's something you can do that no one else can do. And I, I think that's what kind of what you say. <laughs> but I love the words peculiar and idiosyncratic because as soon as you say peculiar, there's a negative connotation, but you've just turned that on its head and you've made that something I want to be peculiar now, just the way you described it. I want to be idiosyncratic and because that's going to lead to creativity, which is going to lead to originality, authenticity and generosity, isn't it? It's going to kind of all flow. But there's a flip side because okay. as I said earlier, you're not entitled to success. And if you are fully peculiar and idiosyncratic, everyone's going to ignore you. If you were, you know, if Lou Reed, rest in peace, though he probably won't, if Lou Reed had made Take a Walk on the Wild Side in 1840, no one would have ever listened to it mm. because it would be too far away from anyone's expectation of what they wanted, right? The Baroness Elsa von Freitag Loringhoven was the original punk artist. She's the one who did the urinal that Marcel Duchamp stole. And she was right on the cutting edge. And you never heard of her because she went over the cutting edge. Uh. Which means that at the same time we're doing this, we have to understand genre. And genre is not generic. Genre just means, what does this remind me of? When I put this on a shelf, what shelf am I supposed to put it on? So if good. I go to, you know, post-pandemic, if I go to the theater, am I going to a strip club, to the cabaret, to a Broadway show? Those are genres. Yeah. And if you show up in a Broadway theater and put on a puppet show, people are going to walk out because it might be idiosyncratic, it might be peculiar, but it doesn't remind them enough of what they came for because genre is about selecting your audience. So good. And so we have to find work that we can rhyme with. There is nothing in our world that is truly original. Nothing. Mm. Everything has to rhyme. And what does it mean for you to remind me of something else? So if we think about, you know, the greatest Broadway production of my lifetime, Hamilton. Well, even if Hamilton has a different cast and a different soundtrack than people expected, it is clearly in and of itself a Broadway show. Mm -hmm. There was never confusing it for that. He, Lin-Manuel Miranda, understood the tropes and genre of Broadway as well as any human being alive. And that was enabled him to have the platform to do something that people said was the most creative thing they'd ever seen and peculiar and idiosyncratic. Yeah. I can make a parody of Hamilton. If they can't make a parody of you and your work, then you're probably not getting the joke. Wow, you've said so much profound stuff. I hope people get this because that is the way you said it is just it's it's amazing because it's be idiosyncratic. I'm just going to paraphrase, see if I'm getting this right. Be idiosyncratic, be creative, be peculiar, but make sure that you put it on the right shelf. In other words, the right genre, make sure that you are rhyming with what in other words, that people can find it relatable. So it's just enough on the edge that it's creative, but it's it's on the edge that they recognize because if it's out of an, on another shelf, people are not going to see the brilliance of what you have. So there's, there's the creativity in balancing, isn't it? It's balancing this that you can generously give to the world, but on the right shelf, in the right genre. That is so excellent. I love that. Well, thank you. And, but it's it also means you have to do the reading. Mm. You have to do the work. So if I said to you, do you agree or disagree with David Bohm, you would be able to have a conversation with me about it because you've done the reading, right? Exactly. Whereas most people would say, who? And the point is that if I am talking to someone who's thinking about going into the publishing industry and I say, what did you think about Michael Cater's rant? And they say, who's Michael Cater? I'm like, you're not a professional. You yeah. haven't done the reading, right? And you're not entitled to say whatever the hell comes into your mind and expect that the world will listen to you. You have Oof. to do the reading. 
Ouch. That is so good. And that just you just you've just explained what's going on in the world today where people aren't doing the reading but they've got all these opinions and they know nothing about it. So keep quiet until you've done the reading. Otherwise you're going to say something that is unprofessional and it's going to hurt someone. That's so important. So to, to get that knowledge before you just shoot your mouth off. And social media has really taught people to just not read and just shoot your mouth off and give your opinion and well this is my opinion. This is my civil right. This is my that in itself, the more my eye that a person says, my eye individualism, that kind of thing, the more they increase their chance of getting a cardiovascular event in the next 12 months by 42%. So I don't know if people realize that, but we're not meant to do that. We are meant to tune into the genre. And if you want to pass an opinion, read, get the knowledge so that you can have a decent conversation and pass a constructive piece of criticism. I love that. You talk about passion and passion being a choice. I love this. Can you explain that? And, and I wanted to say as well, do you think it's problematic that we get so focused on finding one passion? Because you hear so, the word passion, find your passion, passion. I mean, it's just it's like almost an overtraded word, but you handle it differently. So we're missing something. So can, can you talk about passion? Passion is nonsense. And this idea that you were born to do something like Vincent van Gogh wasn't born to be an impressionist oil painter. If he had been born a hundred years earlier or later, he never would have touched the paints. Steve Jobs, if he had been born 200 years earlier, it's unlikely he would have started a computer company. I'm just exactly. saying <laughs> that, that what we do is not say, I am ready and passionate and eager, and then we do the work. Actually, we do the work, and that makes us passionate. We do the work, and that puts us in flow, not the other way around. Writer's block is a myth. Mm, I wanted you to talk about that. Thank you for bringing that up. Okay, talk about that. I make these on my laser glow forge. They're handmade and they're called writer's blocks. Cute. And one of them says on the side, no such thing as writer's block. Like writer's it. block is a myth. No one gets plumber's block, right? No one gets bicycling block. So where did writer's block come from? Well, you can do the research. The term is only as old as Percy Shelley and shortly thereafter. And it is a way for people to hide. If you show me enough bad writing, then I will accept the fact that maybe you're stuck. But most of the people who say I have writer's block don't have any writing because what they really have is I'm afraid of bad writing. And mm. if you just do the bad writing, some good writing is going to slip in. If you write 30 movie screenplays, one of them might be better than terrible. That the act of typing is not difficult. You can write an entire book. You could write To Kill a Mockingbird, type it, I mean. You could type To Kill a Mockingbird in three hours. That wasn't the hard part. The hard part was for Harper to figure out which word. But the typing, not hard. So what I'm saying to people is if you feel blocked, show me your bad work. Show me your cycles. Show me that you showed up and did the thing. Mm. You do the thing it's extremely likely you will find flow and that you will feel passion. So there are all these people who say, my passion is this or my passion is that. No, I think what your passion is, is being seen. Your passion is being feeling of worth. Your passion is feeling of use. And it could be anything. Your passion is not to make YouTube videos about putting on cosmetics, because if YouTube didn't exist, you'd find something else to be passionate about. So do the work, be part of the practice, and then the passion will follow. That's so good. And that doing the work, it's once again that, that inside you, what you've got to offer, that driving whatever that you're interested in, just start doing it, no matter how bad, like just no matter how bad the writing, no matter how bad the cosmetic idea or the business idea, just do it and see what happens, get the feedback and then start the practice and the growth and the all those things that we've been saying up to now. And then the passion starts coming. You start getting, oh, that's the direction. That's what worked. That didn't work. That This is just such logical stuff, isn't it? I mean, it's so, but it needed to be said in the way that you're saying it because you challenge some, you know, some holy cows there or you know, the white elephants in the room or whatever you want to call it. So you also challenge the idea that attitudes are skills. So you explain, you explain the idea, I should say, that attitudes are skills. I like that. And in terms of that, what are some ways to develop healthy attitudes? So can you talk around that? Sure. So the words matter. A talent is something you're born with that you can't change. Being seven foot tall is a talent. I will never be able to dunk a basketball. Never going to happen. Talent is really rare and way overrated. On the other hand, skills are things we can learn. You learn a skill by willingly becoming incompetent on your way to getting better. 
by showing up and absorbing lessons from people who know what they're doing and then practicing them. So here's the question. What's an attitude? An attitude, a word like honest, trustworthy, enthusiastic, even creative, funny. Okay, have you ever been any of those things at least once? At least once? Have you said mm-hmm. something funny? So if you've done it at least once, we you can do it again. Of it. And doing it again turns it into a skill because you can learn. You can learn to be more appropriately honest. You can learn to be more diligent. You can learn any of the attitudes that people care about, you can learn. And that's really good news because it means they're skills. And if they're skills, they're a choice because you can sign up to learn to do them better. So if you just made a list of all the attitudes and skills that you could imagine you'd want to be around, that you'd want to be married to, that you'd want to work for, that you'd want in your, someone you patronize, they're all available to you if you want to go get them. And if they're not important enough to go get them, then stop daydreaming that they're important because they're there if you want them. Oh, I love that. I love that so much. You know, you've also, you talk about myths earlier on, and just to relate to what you're saying, you spoke about, what was it, the myth at the writer's block. There's also the myth of the 21 days that we learn a habit in 21 days. And one of the things that's been part of the work that I've done is memory research and how long it takes to actually build long-term memory into thoughts, because memories of thoughts are made of memories, and how you turn into a habit. And my most recent research has confirmed that this takes at least 63 days, which is at least nine weeks. So when you talk about skills that are learned, you talk about giving you're giving so much hope in what you're saying because if you think oh well that's something that only someone can do and I can't learn it there's no hope but you've just said in such a profound way and hopeful way that whatever you are dreaming of obviously it's in you you can actually learn that and then your book practice I don't know if you've got the numbers of time how long it takes to form a habit but basically if you practice for 63 days you can learn that skill that's something that I tell people as well is that some you can you anything can be learned anyone can learn how to learn our brains just designed to grow and our minds designed to push that and it's such a hopeful thing because then you don't just feel oh my goodness it's only the few out there as you said talent is overrated and we've put everything around talent and thinking okay that's the other and I'm part of the majority that isn't the other. But you've just changed that and put that on its head that anyone can learn to do a skill that is relevant to what they're focusing on and what grabs their attention. I think I've, have I, have I understood you correctly? You have. And the irony, of course, as someone who writes books about marketing is it is much easier to market the following. You are special. You'll be touched by the muse. You have a magical talent. You won't have to work very hard to expose it. The world owes you an audience and you should be authentic. If I said all of those things, I could write a bestseller in 15 minutes. Oh gosh, yeah, because people want to hear that. To sell, right? Yeah. I'm fortunate in that I don't need a big audience. I just need an audience that's engaged. And in the workshops we run, you know, many of which run for more than 63 days for the very reason you're talking about, not everyone takes them. But we have 20,000 people whose lives have been changed because they're the right 20,000 people. And so if you're willing to accept a smaller audience of people who get the joke, then you can do your work. But if you insist on pandering to everyone, you're going to be stuck. That is one of the best pieces of advice that you can give anyone. What you've, everything you've said has been just one pearl of wisdom after another. But that is very freeing, what you've just said now, that you don't have to reach, if you're going to pander to the whole world, you're never going to satisfy anyone. And you almost have to compromise your values to write the quick fix magic bullet solution, which we know doesn't work, but it, as you said, it sells. Because yeah, these three steps and boom, you're rich, famous and whatever. But the hard work comes in the slogging away and all those things that we've been speaking about. And you've got to, I just love the fact that you it's the 20,000 or the 10,000 or the five, whatever the number is, that's the audience that you need to reach. And that's what you should be happy and satisfied with. You should, and that make you, there the authenticity becomes real, doesn't it? Because it's from inside out. You're not trying to manipulate or change yourself or change who you are to suit other people, which is, I love it. I love that so much. Okay, have we got time for one more? One more question. Let's do one last question and then I got to run, but this has been thrilling. Oh, I've loved it. I'd love to have you back again. One last question, very quick. You have another interesting idea and one that will challenge some people. It's to avoid reassurance. You did bring that up earlier on. I just wanted to circle back and end with that because we're in a world that is just constantly looking for reassurance. Yeah. So this one really pisses people off. Okay. So here we go. If you need people to say everything's going to be okay, there are two problems with that. First, everything is not going to be okay. Not everything is going to work out the way you need it to. You know that. Second, 
even if someone you trust says everything is going to be okay, it will wear off. It will wear off much faster than you think, mm. usually within a few minutes. And then you need them to say it again. We have an insatiable need for reassurance. Or you can acknowledge that reassurance is futile. Reassurance is a trap. That maybe it's better to assert that not everything is going to be okay. That the next thing you work on probably isn't going to work. That the thing you're planning on might not happen. And then do it anyway. That it's super popular to say to people, what would you do if you knew you could not fail? Which is sort of a bogus question. It's like, you know, what would you wish for from a genie? And you can hack the question. Yeah, yeah. How about this question? What would you do if you knew you would fail? What would be worth doing anyway? Oh, I love that. Oh, gosh. Okay, we have, that's so profound. We have to end it there. Say it again one more time and then let's end it there. Say that, that last statement. What would you do? If you knew you would fail, go do that. I love that. That's incredible. Seth, you've been amazing. How, where can people find out more about you and get your book practice, the, recent, the new one that's coming out and all your other incredible work and your courses that are f- profound? So there's 7,500 blog posts at seths.blog, S-E-T-H-S.blog. And if you go to seths.blog slash the practice, there's my book. And all of our workshops are at akimbo.com, A-K-I-M-B-O. And my podcast is there as well. Perfect. I've got your webpage open in front of me right here. We'll have all those details in the show notes. And it's been a pleasure and so enjoyable. Thank you. And I hope we'll come back again. Thank you so much. Be well. Make a run. Thank you. I hope you found today's podcast interesting and helpful. If you want more tips and help with managing anxiety, depression, and mental health, be sure to visit my website at drleaf.com and to sign up for my weekly newsletter where I also include a schedule of my speaking events and so much more. And follow me on social media. I'm on Twitter, Facebook, and Instagram. Just look for Dr. Caroline Leaf. Also, I love seeing all your posts on social media about this podcast. I love seeing what resonates with you and what you've learned. So be sure to continue posting and tagging me and letting me know what you think and how these tips worked out for you. And don't forget, leave a review and keep spreading the word about this podcast. Thank you for joining me today. I really hope you learned something new and helpful. Till then, I'm Dr. Caroline Leaf. This podcast represents the opinions of myself and my guests. The content here should not be taken as medical advice. The content here is for educational and informational purposes only. Please consult your healthcare professional for any individual medical questions you may have. While we make every effort to ensure that the information we are sharing is accurate, we welcome any comments, suggestions or corrections of errors.